Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In this podcast, I do deep dives into current TV shows that I'm watching, usually week to week. And occasionally we throw some movie reviews in there, some general recommendations, and some music history, too. I'm a big music fan as well, especially when there's some intersection with something I'm watching at the time. In today's episode, we are recapping the ninth, the penultimate episode of The Patient on Hulu. Earlier this week, we similarly recapped the penultimate episode of House of the Dragon. If you haven't caught up on that yet, or if you're listening to us for the first time, welcome and feel free to check that out if you are watching that show. And just last weekend, I reviewed and gave a full spoiler-filled recap of the latest Halloween film, which is available in theaters and on Peacock simultaneously. And my sister Celia and I also in that same episode discussed the Hulu reboot of Hellraiser, which is currently available to stream. As these shows are wrapping up, we have already picked out our next series to cover. One is The Peripheral on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime just had a big rating success with their Lord of the Rings series. And hoping for a halo effect, they have adapted the William Gibson science fiction novel, The Peripheral, into a new series showrun by Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan, the creators of the Westworld TV series for HBO, which had uh, just wrapped up their fourth season recently, a terrible fourth season, but had an excellent, excellent first season. So curious to see what they can do with this very interesting material. And we will begin to cover that series in our next episode. That first episode drops on Friday, actually Thursday night. So feel free to watch along as we start to recap and review that series. As for Sona and I, my co-host in these patient recaps, we will be discussing The White Lotus immediately after our recaps of The Patient. So The Patient, as I mentioned, one more episode next week. There'll be a recap of that and final thoughts on the series, a very uneven ride we've had so far. And then, of course, White Lotus the very following week. And if you have not caught up on The White Lotus, a hugely successful Emmy-winning series, now Emmy-winning series from HBO, do catch up on that. It is a relatively quick binge, relatively few episodes, and not that long. And they're currently available all to stream on HBO Max. And of course, season two coming in two weeks, immediately after the conclusion of House of the Dragon, which we will also be recapping the finale of that next week. Next week might have a strange production schedule because I may very well give you an instant reaction to the House of the Dragon finale on Sunday night, a shorter episode there, then a full review and conversation with Celia later in the week. And you might see a similar thing with the patient, maybe an instant reaction to the finale, followed by a conversation with Sona. But you might see other episodes next week as well. Guillermo del Toro has a special project coming through Netflix, an anthology, where he is rolling out two episodes per night, two short stories and uh, films as episodes. And maybe it'll be fun to drop nightly episodes of those recaps as well. We will see. We will see. If not minimally, I will definitely cover that in a separate episode. But maybe I can do this nightly. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. If you're interested in catching all that material, please make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available. If you'd like to support the show, please recommend this to your friends and family. Drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or just give us a five star. If you just haven't done it before, just tap that five star or give us any rating you'd prefer. But of course, five star would be best. Also, check our backlog for other shows you may have missed in the past that, that we've covered or that you may be catching up on for the first time. Some recommendations I'd have, 
Succession, excellent season of Succession. Severance, if you haven't caught up on that yet. And of course, we just wrapped up recently Better Call Saul. So if you are catching up on Better Call Saul, make sure to check out our full coverage of the final season of that show as well. And look at our backlog for other Halloween-themed shows you might want to catch up on. Along with this current review of Halloween, I also reviewed Halloween Kills from last year. So search our feed for that episode. Speaking of Guillermo del Toro, who's also putting out an animated version of Pinocchio, stop-motion animated version of Pinocchio, in just a few more weeks on Netflix, along with this Netflix compendium of horror films that he's releasing this upcoming week, check out our review of his remake of Nightmare Alley, which is also available in this same feed. If you're going on a long drive or have some downtime, catch up on some other material. With that out of the way, I'm going to break down this episode of The Patient on my own and then bring in Sona for a conversation about this eventful next to last episode of the show. I assume it's the end of the show. I do not expect a season two. Your dream. <sighs> Auschwitz. Victor Frankl is lying there having a nightmare. Remember what he said not to do in his book? Reality is worse than a nightmare when you're in Auschwitz. Don't wake him up. I woke him up. Maybe the dream is trying to say the human spirit can prevail. You should keep working, keep being a therapist no matter what. How's it saying that? I don't know. That's in his book. Or maybe it's telling me, don't die like a fucking sheep. So this episode is called Auschwitz. Interesting that we have brought in this concentration camp motif multiple times in the show. I'm still not sure exactly what the thematic connection is here. We've speculated in the past that it might have to do with the fact that, given his Jewish history, here he is, imprisoned and controlled in this basement, and maybe just thinking upon those stories that he heard, maybe, of people in his family, maybe connecting him back to this cultural trauma, which definitely is a theme here of the show, this trauma passing from one generation to the next, specifically with Sam and his father. In this concentration camp dream sequence, Alan seems to recognize that one of the prisoners is Viktor Frankl, a famous psychiatrist who actually was interred in a concentration camp during the Second World War for a period of time. And he wakes him up. And apparently, something I didn't know until I saw it here, that Frankel had mentioned that you should never wake somebody up while they're dreaming, especially when they're in a bad condition, because the dreaming is an escape. It's a reprieve from their uh, terrible life circumstance. So Alan has violated this trust. Then Alan is once again in this mind space where he's in his fantasy psychiatric session with Charlie, his former psychiatrist. Alan knows that things are getting close to the end here and he needs to take action. He's been filing that tube of foot paste for this past couple episodes. He says this is sufficiently sharpened and sturdy to be a weapon, although I do wonder. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever used one of those tubes, but uh, if you can imagine in your mind grabbing it and stabbing at somebody with it. I mean, I guess you could slash. I think you could slash someone pretty badly with it use it like kind of like a box cutter. But if you're going to stab at somebody, I'm pretty sure the thing will just fold up. So maybe he has not really thought this out. 
He does also try to get into shape and he can only pull off one push-up. Alan, you should have been doing push-ups all day long. What else were you doing down there other than moping in bed? You should get into a prison workout routine, push-ups day and night. Regardless, Alan is preparing himself mentally for having to potentially kill his patient, who, by the way, don't feel too guilty about this. This guy is a serial killer and apparently has killed many people who do, by all appearances, have a tenuous connection to each other. And yet, where are the cops? This investigation is not going anywhere. We don't know where the investigation's at, but they apparently not been able to connect these dots other than realizing that this is a serial killer at large. Where are the police? Someone inspired here. Alan actually calls Sam to wake him up and asks him that he needs to have a sit down in a conversation. Alan actually tells him about Victor Frankel and touches on something we have discussed in previous episodes. This idea that without connections to other people, life can be lonely and it can twist our minds, basically. Sam knows that this is a delay tactic, but still hears out Alan. And Alan basically says, let's have you try to reconnect with another person. So if he can't find some new relationship, maybe he should try to reconnect with Mary. Sam does mention that he always had these perverse fantasies, even when he was with Mary, which is possibly why he needed to break up with her. It is kind of sad during this interaction that Sam and Alan kind of say, we do like each other, <laughs> but we know this is not going to go well. Alan's just trying to obviously delay the inevitable as much as he can while he tries to come up with some escape plan. Alan does have a pretty strange plan here where he says that maybe if he can see them interacting, maybe he can coach Sam and help him reconnect with Mary. And his plan is invite her over and get a nanny cam so I can watch. Basically, his plan would be to attack Sam fatally, I assume, or at least mortally, and then scream out to Mary for Mary to run out of the house and to get help. This is really a terrible plan, but I do understand this is a Hail Mary pass, as Charlie tells him in his fantasy Charlie sessions, because honestly, this seems to be a pretty bad idea. Sam tells Candace, his mom, that he's having brunch with Mary tomorrow. He's basically texted her immediately on Alan's say-so. Candace miraculously appears after being absent for about three episodes now. And at first she says, this is a strange plan, but she's on board with it. I like Mary. It'll be nice to see her again. I mean, we know from the start that this is not going to work out. <laughs> And then things get go into a maybe intentionally comedic direction. We have Alan trying to coach Sam to role play and say, let's practice for tomorrow. This made me think of the rehearsal on HBO, if you guys caught that, that series that recently wrapped up. But how do you rehearse so that you're not as awkward in the circumstance? Sam is completely unable to do any kind of rehearsal here. Alan even tries to flip it over and say, well, why don't you pretend to be Mary? <laughs> And he's just like, it's fine. It's good. It's good. It's fine. That's it. That's the only answers he has. He seems to have stage fright as well as just some kind of social anxiety, just pretending to be in the circumstance. It does make you wonder how he was able to be in a marriage with Mary for so long and have this level of awkwardness, even in pretending to have a conversation with her, especially when he's um, with his therapist, who he has definitely built some level of affinity with Alan. So how can he still be this level of awkward? We arrive at the brunch date day, which is, I think, just the following day. Mary is there. We can watch on the nanny cam this interaction. It's very interesting to see Mary and Candace having a very normal conversation. Oh, side note here. This is a beautiful house. So it seems to be a massive house that they live in. Maybe if Alan escapes somehow in the next episode, we'll get to see more of this house. But from the little of it, we do see it looks like a beautiful location. 
and probably a very expensive house, especially in California. One of the funniest things that happens at this brunch date is Sam absolutely butchering that joke that Alan told at the end of last episode. Good joke. <laughs> Awkward delivery given the circumstances last week. But oh boy, he completely butchers it here. It turns out serial killers aren't great at their punchlines or their setups, actually. <laughs> I do like Alan's pained expression <laughs> in just, ooh, just really feeling for him this terrible botched joke that he's trying to tell. At one point, Sam rushes to Alan's side. He gets very close to Alan at this point, kind of lets his guard down. They sit next to each other to watch on the baby monitor and asks Alan for more advice. You see Alan grabbing tightly to that sharpened tube and you know he's just not going to do it. Not only because we have a whole episode of show left, but just a simple fact is like, what is the plan here? As Charlie said in this fantasy therapy session, what if Candace beats Mary over the head with a frying pan and Mary doesn't escape? What if Mary makes a break for it? And doesn't make it to the door before Sam tackles her to the ground. Is he going to get Mary killed? But I can make an argument just from a holistic point of view that if Sam kills Alan, he may very well just keep killing. So yes, Mary may die or Mary may escape and blow the lid off this whole entire thing. But if Sam goes unchecked, he will continue to kill. But Sam can't not be responsible for Mary's well-being and does not take action here. It is interesting to note also that once Sam leaves the room, Mary and Candace have a much more natural interaction. Still confusing to me that Sam and Mary could have had a normal or somewhat normal relationship given the awkwardness here of their interactions. Mary eventually leaves. Alan tucks away his weapon, pretty defeated here. When Sam comes to talk to Alan, he says, that was a disaster. Not only is he not able to rekindle things with Mary, Mary said that it's a good idea. It's a good idea for divorced couples to stay in touch. Maybe they can keep having these brunch dates once a year. <laughs> so not quite the rekindled connection they were all hoping for. Oh, but interestingly, when Sam does return to the brunch after talking to Alan, he had just completely unprompted brought up his abuse by his dad, which is kind of a breakthrough for him. Just the fact that he was able to express this openly. You know, you're never going to believe this, but I kind of miss the lazy boy. <laughs> He's very comfortable. <laughs> I could, I could bring it back if you oh, want. Oh, no, that's okay. No. <laughs> no. I have other good chairs in the couch. That chair was his father's. My father beat me up a lot when I was a kid. That's why I went into therapy. Oh. Sam. So my parents got a new cat. So we do see a minor breakthrough here, even though overall, I don't think this is the effect that anybody wanted of this brunch date. But it does kick off the finale of this particular episode. Alan does call out the fact that Sam bringing that up, the abuse by his dad, was kind of a breakthrough for him. And he wants him to explore this, that he should question himself and say, when you are killing those innocent men out there, isn't this the anger you have towards your dad expressing itself? Aren't you killing them instead of your dad? And this gooses Sam. We've seen multiple times here that once he sparks to an idea that he thinks is going to potentially work, 
he immediately takes action on it pretty rashly without thinking through his thought process. And that can go for inviting Mary over like instantaneously the second he brought it up without even playing it out in his mind or sending her a text. Hey, come over tomorrow for brunch. It can also tie into the fact that when his mom said you should get therapy, he's like, I got it. I'm going to kidnap a therapist and stick him in my basement. <laughs> so this is Sam's pattern. And now he is similarly sparked to this idea of these victims being his dad's surrogate, which makes him think of Edmund Kemper. By the way, another recommendation, if people are interested in these type of psychological dramas, one of the absolute best psychological drama series of the past few years, or maybe ever, Mindhunter on Netflix, loosely based on the true story of the development of the psychological profiling task force at the FBI, where Edmund Kemper is a key character with an excellent, I believe, Emmy-winning performance. He's one of the most forthcoming of all these serial killers. And Sam, of course, knows his serial killer lore. He's probably watched Mindhunter multiple times, and he busts out his laptop with a video of Edmund Kemper talking about how he cured himself. He was a co-ed killer. He killed many, unfortunately, very young girls on college campuses or near college campuses. But his hatred revolved around his mother. And he had, at a very young age, actually killed his grandmother. And then finally, years later, killed his mother and humiliated her body in ways I won't detail here. And immediately after this brutal act, he turned himself in. It was the end of his bloodlust. And Sam goes, Alan, I know exactly what you're trying to tell me to do. I have to immediately go kill my dad to cure myself of this compulsion. Alan says, that is absolutely not what I'm telling you to do. But Sam exits through the sliding door saying, nope, I got your point, Alan. I'm going to go visit my dad, chop off his head, and do the same thing that Kemper did to his mom's head. <laughs> and then turns around and says, just kidding. This guy cannot deliver a joke unless it has to do with a serial killer, apparently, because he's got pretty good timing in the delivery of this grotesque punchline. All right. So that is the episode. I will not tell you what I thought of this episode, although I will be having a conversation right now with my co-host, Sona, get her impressions of this episode, and maybe my general opinion will bleed out. And I'll also be speculating. I think I have an idea as to where this whole show is going to wrap up next week. So stay tuned for that. We will also be discussing The Watcher, another Ryan Murphy blockbuster on Netflix for, and I'll just tell you right now, this show is absolutely terrible. And if you watched it on my say so, I apologize. <laughs> or I should say, I hope you did enjoy it. If you did watch it for me, can't be garbage, but Sona did watch some of it as well. And we will be discussing that as well, because this is a story that took place right here in my home state of New Jersey that I was pretty fascinated by the original real life story. And I feel like this is really not the adaptation I had any interest in seeing, but we'll get into all of that along with final impressions of this episode of The Patient as well. I told you all about my father. It was the first thing that I told you. That is true. Mm -hmm. But you had trouble giving me details. It was hard for you to tell me a really full story. And for you to go forward with Mr. Puchala or anyone, I think it is very important that you try to access those memories and those deeper feelings about him. I don't have any trouble accessing my memories and my feelings. I remember everything. You, you think that I don't remember? I think about it all the time. I think about every time he hit me, every time he looked at me, the way he looked at me, the way he hated me. What the f this, the, Sam, 
what's happening right now, how you're feeling. When you get so angry that you hurt someone, that's a version of what's happening in this exact moment. And at the root of it is your father, as we've discussed. It's not the people you hurt that you're mad at, it's him. So you, you think that I kill people because of him? Almost instead of him. Oh. I get it. All right, Sona. So I did the episode breakdown, but I did want to walk through some of the really key points, I think, in the episode. So first of all, the episode is called Auschwitz. And we do see Alan once again in Auschwitz. He is interrupts. He actually wakes up Victor Frankl, something that Victor Frankl apparently specifically said though, not to do. <laughs> he never wakes somebody up when they're in a terrible circumstance because their sleep is their reprieve from what their, their, their current bad situation I've never experienced anything as awful as that, but sometimes <laughs> I dream not. about the thing that I am trying to get away from. So it just seems like there's no escape because I just dream the same thing I'm dealing with in my life. I do agree with that, that, you know, maybe Frankel was a little <laughs> wrong. I mean, I guess given the absolute horrendous circumstances. Yes. I mean, in, there's not much that could be worse than that. Yeah. To your point, like when you have a, uh, you know, some kind of personal stress in your life or job, uh, stresses you often dream about that exact right. thing right yes beyond the victor frankel connection here which actually turns out to be pretty important for this entire episode do you still have any other read on what this auschwitz imagery might be in the show i really don't i have to say <laughs> and know. well you know you and i have been discussing right a question was asked regarding why we keep watching a show that we don't like <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and I have to say, you know, in this particular circumstance, I think the show has redeemed itself in yeah. a lot of ways. I think it has really been improving since maybe around the midpoint. Yep. But this is something I feel so far along. It should be clear yes. what this imagery is about by now. Maybe it shouldn't be fully clear, right. but we should be able to have a hypothesis at least. And I don't even have that. Do you? I, I do not. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but I, I feel the same way. I feel like that the show, although I, I have liked it very much so the last two episodes, same. I do feel kind of my frustration with this specific episode. I still just don't understand with just one episode to go, what the overall shape of the story is like, why tell this story and why tell it this way? A little vexed by these things. And like you mentioned, like the Auschwitz imagery should be pretty clear at this point, what it actually represents. And, uh, I can still speculate on what it means. Right. I, I mean, I like these poor people had a death sentence. He feels like he has a death sentence. I don't know, but I feel like I'm plucking things out of the air here. <laughs> right. You know, you brought it up. I do want to mention that we got a review recently that I shared with you just yes. this week, just this week, actually. And I do want to address it here briefly. And I'm glad you reminded me. So I won't say the name of this person, although it's right in their review. If anyone <laughs> wanted to actually take a look at it. <laughs> And I'm not saying this to shame the person. I do want to address it. The review's title is TV Snobs. <laughs> you know, I didn't notice that was the title. <laughs> That's the title. Oh my gosh, my reading comprehension. I guess I just went straight to the meat of it. Okay, go ahead. 
And it says content is good at times. Thank you. But then they review some shows that they obviously don't like. So they give half-hearted commentaries on those shows. Just don't watch the show if you hate it so much. <laughs> Eject. <laughs> to that point, I want to mention a couple of things, which I don't really talk about here, which first of all is like, this is not our profession. <laughs> this is just something we do as a hobby. Uh, that I enjoy doing and enjoy having conversations with my friends about these things. So I try to find a show that I think we will have a good experience discussing. And I go into this, I intentionally try to find stories and shows that I think are going to be exciting to watch and that I go into it with the best, always with the best possible intentions. Occasionally, you know, I watch the Dahmer show, for example, I only covered that. And maybe that's what this person thinks I'm being overly negative about in some of those episodes where I talked about Dahmer. That was just because the show was such a phenomenon. I was curious to have a conversation about the popularity of that show and just in general, these different serial killer or thriller type based on true story uh, series, which I think is like a cultural phenomenon that I'm curious about. Agree. So in general, I always go into this with the best of intentions. And I do try to take for example, in this show specifically, I try to think about why are these people making this show? Like, what is the purpose of it? And not that this specific criticism is in this mode, but I've had criticisms before where people have said, oh, don't take it so seriously. Like, it's just a lark. Why, why are you trying to analyze that movie or why are you trying to analyze that show uh, why are you trying to ask these questions? Like, why is this person making this show? Why are they telling this story? It's just a show. Get over it. And this is, for me, <laughs> and I have to get it out there, the most frustrating argument I could possibly imagine. Think about what it is to make a show. Think about the dozens of people who wrote those scripts, the performers, the contracts that were signed, this network that is investing millions of dollars in making and advertising this thing. It's as if you said to somebody, this person sold their house, opened a business, and then after two or three months, the business was so unsuccessful that they completely lost everything that they had acquired in their whole entire lives. And then you would question, hmm, I wonder why they opened that business and took all those risks. And someone goes, it was just a goof. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is literally like hundreds of people's livelihood, something that they do exclusively for months and months, sometimes years of their lives. And everybody's just like, don't take it so seriously. I'm like, I am pretty sure they're taking it pretty seriously. <laughs> I am just trying to take it as seriously as they did. That's that's my general opinion there. I mean, also the types of shows we talk about, I think are the type, at least you and I, I not talking about anything else you review with other people, but are the type that are to be taken more seriously, yes. I think. Yeah. I mean, these aren't 30 minute sitcoms, right? Where yeah. it's just like telling a story and you laugh a few times and everybody's right. happy and <laughs> wait, you just walk away from it and don't give it another thought. I think these are shows that are meant to be mulled over and have possibly some deeper significance to them and uh, some sort of meaningful aspect to them. Right. I completely agree with what you're saying. And that's part of the decision process in picking these shows. I'm picking a show that I think we can explore deep topics with. For example, with this show, obviously they have some very, very deep topics that they're dealing yeah. with. The alienation from your parents, the you know, intergenerational abuse that would lead to someone turning into a serial killer, the phenomenon mm -hmm. of serial killers, Auschwitz. These are all very, very, very serious topics. So this is, you know, worth discussing these ideas, I think. And if, by the way, if your argument is that this is all just a lark, it's just a goof, then I would say that is insulting. And I don't believe this is the case, by the way, but to just flippantly bring up 
the Holocaust just for what? <laughs> for no effect? Like, I, I, I don't I don't believe that either. So I, that's just my general opinion. Anyway, so I did want to add that context. We are not professional critics. It's not like I get to watch these shows ahead of time, like many professional critics do. And then I'm just sitting there waiting to dunk on them. That's not the direction we're coming from at all. We're hopefully, ideally, just expressing a frustration potentially with some of these shows that I assume that audience members are also having. What struck me about the comment was the half-hearted part, um, because I thought like, if anything, I think we talk quite a bit about like, well, what isn't working here and why? And like, you know, what is it about this that's bothering me? I think we actually give quite a bit of thought to why something is not enjoyable for us to watch. (laughs) Um, Maybe, maybe more than we do actually when we're like, I loved it. It was great. So, so, um, I mean, we're, we're trying, we're trying. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Always, always trying. And that's just one more encouragement, everybody out there, by the way, because that's a two-star review. (laughs) So one more time that if the vast majority of you have never given us a rating at all. So do tap a rating on our, on the Apple podcasting app, if you have it and five star, you know, five star would definitely counteract that two star. It would be <laughs> so, helpful. Yeah. Yes. Watch it. Watch the avalanche of one and two star reviews. Oh so gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> you uh, asked for it. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Here's my opinion. <laughs> I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but you directly (laughs) asked me to do this. You really want to know. Okay. So back to (laughs) the breakdown here. Yeah. So we have that Auschwitz fantasy, I guess, but that does lead Alan to have this revelation of a way of a kind with Charlie that maybe he's going to have to break his code of conduct here. And that could mean killing his patient, which honestly, I don't know why he's so (laughs) <laughs> why he's so stressed about this considering that it's going to be him or or it's going to be one of them right only one can survive i assume this situation something that struck me and i don't think there's anything to it but for some reason something about the imagery the way this was set up when he wakes up from the nightmare and he sits in the bed and is looking at his tube <laughs> yeah foot cream, <laughs> all of a sudden for some reason it struck me well what if he chose to use the tube to kill himself yes i have I have thought about that before. That maybe he's thinking about that. And then I wondered, like, have I been misinterpreting this all along? But they've made direct references to the tube being used as a weapon, I think. Oh, yeah. And specifically in this episode as well. Yeah. But it was something about the way the scene was set up. I wondered if he was thinking, well, at least I can have control if I take my life myself. Completely agree that I can imagine this could be, you know, sharp enough to, for example, slit his wrist. You know, he could just bleed himself out or something, which right, exactly. would be. And you think about his those flashbacks, those nightmare scenarios he has of being brutally strangled to death, and he probably thinks like, "Well, it's better than that, right?" So that, I, I do agree that that is probably something that is playing in the back of his mind. Although we see here specifically in this episode that he definitely intends to use it as a, a weapon, and the setup for that is that he has this uh, conversation with Sam here, and basically says, you know, one of the things that. Frankel talked about is the most important things in, uh, you know, society is our connections. And this is something we talked about in regards to the Dahmer series, as well as just this show as well. And I brought up the analogy of incels in our current culture, that it's almost like what you're allowed to do when you disconnect so much from everybody else in the world, like you no longer have any kind of a mirror of, of your crazy fantasies and behavior. 
can lead to some pretty dark areas in your mind. And they're touching on this here saying like, you need to connect more, which by the way, unlike a lot of other serial killers, he does have his mom around. So that's still more than, you know, he, he's a lucky mm-hmm. serial killer. You know, he's got, he's got <laughs> some, he's got some support from family. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Alan, this is kind of a Hail Mary pass or a, what, what did Charlie call it? The Mary Hail Mary of having, inviting him, her over for brunch. Brunch at 10 a.m., which as a New Yorker yes. was very disturbing to me. That <laughs> is early. extremely early, but okay, sure. Originally, he's going to have uh, Indian food at this brunch, but it turns out that it says, well, does she like Indian food? And he's like, no. <laughs> it's like, well, then maybe you shouldn't have Indian food. He does end up ordering food that she does like, but then like embarrasses her a little bit by mm-hmm. saying like, well, the Indian food makes her gassy. She's like, mm, oh, great, thanks. Thanks for <laughs> reminding me. Right. But uh, he does, you know, uh, impulsively uh, invite Mary. Candace at first, the mom is kind of like, huh, that's kind of weird. Proof now, by the way, proof positive that Candace is an actual person. Yes, <laughs> we know even. for sure. Although, once again, it raises the questions of where has she been for the past few episodes. She at first is kind of, this is weird, but okay, let's have her over. I like Mary. I haven't seen her in a while. She comes over for that brunch. Sam tries to tell this joke, that same joke from last week, <laughs> and his timing is terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. As opposed <laughs> to last week when I said he tells this joke very well. I mean, this is so fractured and painful to listen to. Yeah, cringeworthy. Uh, Another thing I found very interesting is it's not until Sam leaves the room that the women start to have kind of a natural conversation uh, and he can actually witness it on the, you know, baby monitor. And also that the, uh, he sits down right next to Alan. He's like so curious to watch, you know, to eavesdrop on this conversation via the baby monitor that he sits mm-hmm. right next to Alan, mm-hmm. which gives Alan that chance. You see Striking Alan. Striking distance. Exactly. Yes. But then I'm thinking to myself, so how exactly is this going to work? Is he going to like slash his neck and then I think he out- has to go for the carotid. Like right. you, it has to be very, very targeted. I think it's the thing that Charlie brought up. If he, you know, just wounds him badly and then screams out to Mary, what happens? Does Candace attack Mary? Does Candace not attack Mary? But Mary freezes up. Does Mary make a, r- a run for the front door in this very big house, by the way? It seems to be a very big house. And does Sam intercept her before she gets there? Like, so, you know, as much as I can criticize other decisions here, I can understand why he would be hesitant to, to pull the trigger. Would you have done something different in that situation? No, I mean, especially given Sam has specifically told him, hey, if Mary's got to go, she's got to go. Right. So, right. Yeah, right? Um, knowing that, and he has that. That reference, right, when all this is happening, I think this is when it happens. So, like, you're going to get that girl killed. Right, right. I, I understand why he made the decision he did. And I think it, it was a tough call. Because, I mean, he knows that Sam is stronger than him. Right. So He can't do one push-up. <laughs> yeah, right. And, like, yeah, a little late in the game. Maybe yes. he's been doing push-ups all along. <laughs> right. but, um, <laughs> so... As much as like the tube is all he has and maybe he can do something with it, I think we would all agree that the likelihood of success is quite slim. Right. Very slim. So one more important thing that happens during that conversation is after he goes and tries to get some counseling from Alan, he heads back upstairs. And when he returns, he just kind of apropos of nothing, starts talking about the abuse he had, the physical abuse he suffered when he lived with his father. And for some reason, I had assumed the dad was dead, but I mean, I'm sorry. I did too. Right? And then Isn't I thought, like, where did I get that yeah, idea? Me neither. Yes. Exactly. You know, this is kind of surprising to Mary. It's kind of a breakthrough that he can actually have this conversation, but it doesn't really go as planned. Uh, then the brunch ends. Mary takes off and Sam goes back to 
talk to Alan and say, it didn't go as planned. Uh, she says we should do this once a year. <laughs> not really, <laughs> not really what he was hoping for. Kind of late in the game again, Alan is bringing up, basically, I, I would have hoped this counselor would have come to this point earlier in his with his client. Those men that you're killing are probably surrogates for your father. Well, I think this is something he's known all along, but right. he specifically said, I'm supposed to lead you to this conclusion on your own. Right. But I guess he feels like time's a waste him. Let <laughs> yeah. me spell this out for you. So. <laughs> and this, of course, you know, we see impulsive Sam multiple times in this show. This triggers him to remember, hey, now I've done all my serial killer research. Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer, which, by the way, I mentioned in the recap, but I'll mention it to you, Sona. He's like one of the main characters in that Mindhunter show on Netflix. Oh, interesting. Okay. He's like the first one that they, he was very forthcoming when he was being interviewed. So he became like the first case, um, case study, I should say, for uh, that FBI profiling team. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it definitely, once again, it's another reminder to everybody that, you know, that show has been canceled, but there are two seasons of it and really, really interesting show from David Fincher, really well done. And if you are interested in these type of psychological thrillers one of the best examples of it in the past few years but edmund kemper is a real life person obviously the co-ed killer who killed a bunch of uh, teenage girls on campus murdered his grandmother when he was younger and uh, went to like a reform school for for children uh was eventually released and then started murdering again when he was out living with his mother and of course he murders his mother and does some really really horrible uh, things to her body afterwards <laughs> yes uh, to that point Sam's like, hey, Alan, I know what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. going to go visit my dad right now. That's going to fix all of this. <laughs> Chop off his head and do this. I'm going to Kemper that head just the way Kemper did to his mom. And then he says, just kidding, which I thought was very funny because he can't pull off that other joke, but he's got impeccable. It was a very dry humor. Yes. <laughs> yes. When it comes to like murder jokes, he's impeccable with his timing <laughs> and delivery. Oh, my goodness. All right. What did you think of this episode? And do you have any theory of how this is all going to shake out next week? So I enjoyed the episode. Um, definitely for me, I think I, last week's was a very different type of episode. Yeah, I yeah. think I enjoyed last week's more. Yes. But still, this continued like on the upswing for right. the patient compared to the first half of the season. I did like it. I mean, there's really only one episode left. That just seems... Shocking, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I just don't know how they are going to create a satisfying ending in just one episode. Yep. But, you know, I don't want to say it can't be done. Um, You know, I'm interested. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My general impression is the same. I was interested in this episode i'm very very curious to see how it goes next week just because i honestly don't know what's going to happen that being said i was disappointed because and this is once again expectations based on last week's episode i had honestly thought that i had figured out what this show actually had wanted to be and it was not the show we saw this week basically so i really enjoyed so much last week's episode and i thought it was going to continue in this more personal transformation for these characters and it's you know really leaning into potentially being a straight-up thriller for next week and mm-hmm. once again maybe not the show i was hoping to see then again we have one more episode to go i honestly do not know where the show is going to go now which in and of itself keeps me interested uh my theory 
I honestly think this would be a little disappointing if this is the way they go. Alan is going to reach out to the mom and say, look, he's going to kill his dad. The mom is, despite being abused by this man or whatever else, she is not going to allow Sam to go and kill him. Plus the gig is up, you know, like if he goes and kills his dad, I mean, at this point, even the idiot, most idiotic cop in the world is going to be able to put two and two together, I think. At this point. <laughs> so I think she's just going to finally intervene and that's going to be the end game. Now, whether Alan reunites with his son, is that going to be satisfying? Does the dad anticipate the arrival of his son and, and murder him? Do they have it out finally? It'd be interesting to see, you know, a guest star show up playing that role and they have it finally have it out. There could be a really good moment there between the two characters, but I, I honestly do not know. And the show has never, ever from scene to scene, from moment to moment, done what I expected to do. So I could be completely wrong about all those things. I'm just wondering if we're going to see a return of this new therapist and maybe he raises the alarm on something. I don't know. Probably I mean, not. I, I think he's going to go head straight to his dad's house and try to it murder him. It seemed that way. Yeah. And, uh, and I think at that point to then have a therapy session with his, his, uh, with the other guy and everything. I mean, I agree that I feel like we're so close to the end now, like a half hour episode to wrap all this up. The Ezra storyline and Alan's reconciliation, potentially the dad and Sam. I really was hoping that all these things would kind of somehow dovetail together. You know, maybe the cops were closing in. Maybe Ezra uh, is doing his own investigation. But that's not what happened this week. <laughs> so that's not going to happen next week either. So Alan made a good point about like the vagueness of Sam's stories about his yes. abuse. And yeah. I wonder if there's going to be more to that. Um, I mean, it's something that like the mom as well has not added any right. detail to flesh that out into a more vivid thing other than these general allegations of like living this life in terror, which I mean, could very well be true, but I, I thought it was an interesting point that they made and maybe a, for a reason. I agree that I do feel so many times that he's just, you know, saying that I was abused as a kid without going into any additional details. Although I do trust that it did happen because of the fact that maybe it was in episode five or so. There was a really interesting episode when he got the lazy boy chair back and it's almost yeah. like he took on the posture of the dad and, uh, you know, Alan is cowering by the sofa. And it really made me feel like that was mm. the dynamic of him mm -hmm, at, when mm -hmm. he was younger. So I do trust that it happened. Okay. But at the same time, uh, I agree that, you know, it's interesting that when the mom is there and he'll just say this in front of her and she will literally add no color. She won't deny it. She won't agree with right. it. Mm -hmm. Says, you know, adds no, no additional detail. Or she just generally say that they had a bad relationship and that's it. Like it was very, very right. generic. But I am very curious to see, you know, the confrontation between the dad and Sam, which I do assume we're going to see next week. I really do assume that's going to happen. Uh, how does things end with Alan? What's the other reason of having the mom there? She's been so underused in this show. I, I have to assume she's the one who's going to finally, you know, release him. Maybe Alan says, drive me to where they're going to go. And maybe we can keep this terrible thing from happening. Right. And of course, once Alan's out of the house, I assume this whole thing's going to have to fall apart at that point. So, right. That's my guess. So, we will see. I mean, in 30 minutes, how much can they do? Right. They can't introduce new characters or. <laughs> well, you said the episodes have been getting longer. I haven't been paying too much attention. Maybe they'll have 40. <laughs> it could be. You know what? It absolutely could be 40. And still, that's not that much, you know, uh, to do. No, it's not. In that period of time. Although, unlike the structure of the show right now, where there is usually some kind of fantasy sequence at the beginning, or he's talking to Charlie, there's almost like a cold open on every episode. I wouldn't be surprised if next episode goes right into the plot because True. at that point, what is he going to do? He's going to take a nap. 
<laughs> what else are they gonna, you know? <laughs> and just wait for Sam to come back and tell him what happened mm -hmm. with his dad. I mean, I think something's going to happen immediately. So. Right. I'm very curious about how this ends. And I really, depending on how they are able to tie these things together, is whether I would give this thing a thumbs up or a thumbs down, to be totally honest. Right. Remains to be seen. Okay. The next thing I want to talk to you about is you did watch a little bit of The Watcher. I don't know how far you got into it. Two episodes? Is that all you saw? I saw two episodes, correct. I previewed this when I did the recap of the show at the beginning, but I thought this was campy garbage was my general review of this show. And um, here I am. I'm going to get another two-star review from that same person if they can give me two reviews. <laughs> Telling people to watch a show and then bashing it. In general, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> But I do want to add some context as to why I even cared about this show. First of all, I thought that the Dahmer show was going to be utter garbage across the board. And I was very impressed. I would say that the Dahmer show is almost all true. And there's maybe 10 pretty egregious uh, things that are changed from historical in historical terms. Although the vast majority of what we see there is absolutely true, absolutely happened. And I was thinking, okay, so maybe I've misjudged. Ryan Murphy. I've pretty much ignored all of his content for years now because I, wow. I he always leaves a bad taste in my mouth yes. and in general, except for the OJ show, which I did like. And here I was thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll give this another chance. And I also just had a feeling this was going to be a big hit. And indeed, you know, the ratings have come out from last week. It replaced Dahmer at number one. It's doing very, very well. Also, I love this cast. I like Bobby Carnavale. I like Naomi Watts. I like everybody. I mean, uh, Richard Kind. I mean, you just go down the list. There are so many terrific actors in this show who obviously all want to be involved with a very, very popular series on Netflix. Yeah. Great cast for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Margot Martindale, right? I love, great actress mm -hmm, from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Americans, the Americans, and also from justified where she won, you know, she played the villain in season two, won an Emmy award, incredible performance there. Anyway, the cast exceptional across the board. So I'm thinking, okay, these people must, must be onto something. And yeah, I live in New Jersey. You originally lived in New Jersey mm -hmm. and fascinated by this case literally happened uh, in the neighborhood adjacent to where my wife's family comes from. And we were pretty familiar with this story. So if I can say that the Dahmer show was in maybe 90% true, this show is about 90% a lie <laughs> and maybe, mm -hmm. maybe 10% of this. I, I might be generous in saying 10% mm -hmm. of this is factual. This is basically, in my opinion, the first season of American Horror Story, again, Murder House episode, they just swapped out five or six details from this story, plugged it into the original script, and pretty much just reshot that first season of the show again. And I'm like, wow, like what a disappointment for me. I mean, honestly, I think you enjoyed this a little bit more than I did, I, I basically taking it as fiction completely. Well, yeah, I think your criticism is very fair about what it has become. I think the actual real life events are so fascinating to yep, me, yep. so creepy to me. I really wanted to see something that was more aligned with that. Right. I was very put off by the introduction of the Mia Farrow character and yes. her, I don't know who that is to her, that man, right? The one brother, that likes brother. to be in the dumbwaiter because it was like just immediately going in for yes. the American Horror Story weird quirkiness. Right. Just play devil's advocate here. Apparently there was, there was no dumbwaiter, <laughs> but apparently there was a next door neighbor. I think they were brother and sister. So I could be wrong about that. I think, and, and in the show, I think they represent the same 
but I do think he was schizophrenic and he was a suspect by the way, because of his schizophrenia and some of his past behavior, he was originally a suspect as one of the potential letter writers that didn't turn out to be the case. But regardless, I think that is the character they're trying to represent. Okay, Well, that is more than I gave it credit for. Yeah. I don't think he invaded the house or any of those other things at any point. Okay. I mean, that's actually surprising to me because I assume this was a typical Ryan Murphy weirdness. So I give them credit for that then. A a few interesting decisions here. First of all, um, real estate values are out of control in New Jersey. (laughs) And maybe what a million plus buys you in New Jersey would be shocking to people in other parts of the country. I just don't know. But this house is like a mansion compared to the regular house, which is a beautiful, lovely, spacious house. It's by no means like a tiny little starter home, the real life house, but it's not this either, right? So that already seemed to me like a bit of unnecessary artistic license. But also the real life family, my understanding is they had younger children Yes. than the children here, which yes. makes the idea of like, I'm thirsting for young blood <laughs> yes. and like the innocence of these kids. I mean, these are still kids, right. but they're older, right? Like, I, I don't know that like it really aligns that idea of like, I'm thirsting for young blood. Here's your 16 year old daughter. Like that doesn't. <laughs> and this is the whole Ryan Murphy of it all that you had to have a teenage daughter because there's always you know, in every one of these shows, going back to Murder House, there's always like the teenage daughter is the undoing of the family because she's just so horny. (laughs) (laughs) She wants to have sex. Horny women, Um, horny women, by the way, is like the, are like always the villains in all of these. uh, Yeah. So that to me, okay. Like, listen, this is still a beautiful house, even though it's not realistic. I enjoy looking at it. Okay. But changing the children's ages to me really does change one of the basic premises of what really happened. Right. Like, I don't think I would necessarily be as freaked out about my 16-year-old daughter as I would about my three-year-old, right? Right, Like, you know, um, the 16-year-old, you can trust to have some awareness of what's going on around her and some sense of (laughs) self-preservation. Right. Um, Not I mean, obviously, I would still be very, very concerned. I'm not trying to blow it off. But I just think it's a different story now. Right. That all being said, I think I gave it some leeway in that They never did figure out who's doing this. Right. So you have to kind of like choose your own adventure as to what is really going on here. So this is one way to go that like, let's introduce all of these potential suspects and see how it all plays out. So that part, okay. Like I think the other way to go, which they still may, it is a more interesting way to me. And they kind of introduce this in the second episode, maybe the feeling of it with the guy, the talent agent that lived there of like, at a certain point, this all gets in your head and starts making you insane, regardless of what's really going on or not. Right. right. Um, it has so invaded your mind that you have lost all sense of perspective and sanity. And I think that is a more interesting avenue to explore, which right. you've watched more of it than I have. Maybe they still do. I was not completely put off by these first two episodes, but I could see it going in a good direction. I could see it going in a very typical Ryan Murphy over the top direction, which the scene in the second episode with the baby and the altar and the drinking blood, (laughs) this is not what I want from this show. Maybe that ends up being someone's mind already getting carried away. But if that really happened, I'm out. 
it didn't really happen. And, and just to, to, I mean, even in the context of the show, it definitely didn't really happen in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Neighbors were not part of a blood cult. So I think the biggest failure of the show is that it tries to ride the line that you're describing there. For example, there are more and more outlandish possibilities of what is happening in the show. They excuse them away where it's like, we don't know if this actually happened or not, or whether it was totally made up or someone was just trying to do attention seeking or something. And it turned out they were like not the person they said they were. So there's all these kind of ways that it's trying to play coy with the fact that we're going to show you something really, really outlandish, but it's probably not what you think it is. It's probably not an actual ghost. It was somebody messing with them, right? So there's a ghost later in the show. So it's like, there's all this different types of uh, explaining away and they leave things in a very ambiguous way where well, husband and wife have both now moved out of the house and they're like lying to each other saying like, oh, I'm just staying late at work. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm just doing some grocery shopping. And they're actually like on both sides of the house, staring at it, like still longing for this house apparently. Hmm. So they leave things on this ambiguous note, but I think that's kind of a failure of the show. You could have done the show you were describing, where it's about how this need to acquire this thing drives you insane, which I think is kind of the fascination of that original story. And alternately, you could just go, hey, you know, if you're going to make up so many crazy things in this show, and I'm going to tell you a couple of them in a minute, but if you're going to make up such crazy things, like then just double down and say, like, just make it another American horror story, right? Because mm -hmm, they're trying mm -hmm. to make it like almost like you can almost think this is real. Some of the things that happen here are so crazy that you could, um, you know, the, the, the people in this neighborhood, even though they changed their names, but they're, you know, identifiable from the original article, they should like sue... <laughs> Ryan Murphy for, <laughs> for her defamation. That couple, Margo Martindale and uh, Richard Kind, he calls her out and says, you're the one who's been sending me this letter. I think this is in episode three. And he accuses her of saying- No, it's two, episode two. Oh, it is the episode two? Mm -hmm. And then they uh, commit suicide, right? Right. Mm -hmm. At the end of episode three, he's scoping out his house. The family's moved out. They're so freaked out by the letters. They're living in a hotel. And after everybody in the neighborhood- Everybody in the neighborhood has called him out. I can't believe it. You drove them to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. The end of episode three, they come back to the house. They're alive. And they were on vacation in Florida. Then what was up with the 911 call, <laughs> the ambulance, the blood? <laughs> yes. Good question. So everybody in town, they're still treating them like pariahs for having overreacted. And yet no one even talks about what happened in the house. Like everything's just totally cool. No one's uh, uncomfortable about this. And then later on, Naomi Watts' character, Mia Farrow, and Mo, who's uh, Margot uh, Martindale's character, all go have tea at Mia Farrow's house. And she explains that her son is a drug addict and found some homeless old people on the street and killed them for the insurance money. I'm not sure he knew they had insurance on policies on them. I'm not sure how they figured this all out. But A, it's like such a bizarre way to hand wave away this thing. And then we're really supposed to like, everybody just moves on with their lives. Like as if this wouldn't be the, like this would be bigger but, news by far. I mean, this, and these letters. I guess the son, maybe because he's an addict, but he's directly accusing Bobby Cannavale that you drove them to this. You did this in oh, the yeah, second the, episode. The son murdered these people, shot them in the face. <laughs> yeah, I the understand, is, but, he's, but he's blaming Bobby Cannavale. Why then? I, I don't know. And I don't know how he's not going to find out that he, how, to, how he assumes this isn't going to be found out when his parents are going to come back from vacation a week later. So, I, 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 And by the way, just 
delving into the whys of this one specific crazy event in the show should eat up the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. But the show just hand waves it away. It's like, oh, next thing, next thing. It's it's, it's insane. And that's not the only crazy You're thing. Typical that Ryan Murphy. Yes, I'm exasperated. <laughs> just hearing that, right? It's just. Yeah, I'm rolling my eyes. Like, yes. they, uh... yeah, that 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 was the deal breaker for me when they show up alive. Absolutely insane. Nobody oh, which would also, ever by the way, is on a lake. I, I don't think yeah. that's a real thing no, either. I mean, I don't. Maybe no. it's necessary to the plot later, but no, it's not. Um, it's definitely just, it, it just trying to make it beautific as possible. It's just such a good story. Yeah, that yeah. real story. Yep. You know, the Ryan Murphy thing is not my thing. Although I did really enjoy that first season of American Horror Story. So did I. Yep. Um, but it just why it was such a great creepy story like why (laughs) and once again to go back to that review we had where we're just going i'm just bashing something the reason yes i'll i'll tell you the reason wholeheartedly though wholeheartedly bashing it exactly the reason i bring that up specifically is because i can tell you the version of the story that i find so interesting the two things in that original story, which I'll include, by the way, I'll include the link in the show notes. If everybody wants to read it who has not yet read it, but you can just Google it also. It ran in The Cut, which is New York Magazine, I believe, just there, mm-hmm. yep. uh, a section in there. And I'll include the original link. But you know, they try to make this sound like this is a one and a half million dollar house. The original folks did pay about a million and a half dollars for it. Eventually sold it for like $900,000. Like a decade later, this thing dragged on forever. They lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on this house, even after putting repairs into it. But like you said, just because real estate prices are ridiculous in New Jersey, a $1 million house in that neighborhood is really not a palatial house. This actual house was built only like four or five years ago. It was like made in the style of an old time house, but it's all brand new. It's nothing, this ancient classic house that they supposedly- With a protected dumb waiter. Right. None of that is real. And uh, this house is like a three and a half million dollar mansion, basically. It's not a $1 million Mm -hmm. house. So no no one's going to, it's just, all of it is just false on its face. And when you see this house, like you mentioned already, it's a beautiful house. It is. Absolutely. It's very, it's a really nice, cozy, old style house, all redone. Very nice. It is not a mansion, (laughs) not even close. Mm -hmm. So it does make these people feel like they are over strivers in a way that the real folks are not. What I originally thought was fascinating about the story is A- this idea just culturally that, you know, we're like, you know, we're going to buy this house and it's going to be a place where we live. And it's this fantasy we have of the American dream, which turns toxic for the very thing that they're trying to aspire to. I do think something that was interesting here, and maybe this continues to be a plot, I don't know, is the idea of like escaping the big bad city right. to this idyllic life in the suburbs. And it turns out to be the suburbs that are actually evil. Right. I think that's an interesting thing, especially as a city dweller. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But I don't know if that continues to be developed any further, but I think it's it's something that I like watching, that idea. I'd say there's a lot of lip service to it in the rest of the show, but it doesn't really develop it in a, okay. a satisfying way. But the second thing I was going to say that I find very interesting about the story, because I'm just so fascinated by this as a cultural moment, that this is about trolling as well in the fact that when you think about people being bullied and you know online you think about you know the this recent Alex Jones uh, verdict lies being ruined by being trolled i found that very interesting when you think about it obviously this is not happening on the internet it's an actual letter but it's like layers of trolling in this original story where a you have the letters being sent so that's the first layer of trolling second of all people start like playing pranks on them like 
this is all me reading between the lines. But for example, when people show up at their house saying that they're a home inspector, they walk around their house. It turns out that person wasn't even a home inspector. It was just some random troll who wanted to get inside their house and mess with them. So that's mm-hmm. another layer of trolling. And then the third layer of trolling is when you realize that eventually the neighborhood itself is so angry at them for trying to split the property, sell it to it, et cetera, and so forth, that they basically bully them. The town organization itself bullies them to the extent that they were not able to split their land in half and sell it to be turned into two different homes, like have two homes built on it. They rejected them from doing that. And then a year, a year and a half later, because they said the lot of land was too small to split. And then they end up taking the the lot immediately next to theirs and approving it to be split into two properties, but they were not allowed to sell their property. At that point, it was like people just intentionally messing with mm-hmm. them because they had brought like bad publicity to their town. At that point, it's almost like the entire town was trolling them. So I mm-hmm. thought that was really fascinating, this, this um, contagion of trolling, that, that they are the victims of this. And because they are vocal about it, they become like the the bad guys. It's like, why do you keep talking about this? Why do you keep trying? <laughs> like, It's just like, because I'm being victimized. Can I talk about this? No, stop talking about this or, or we're going to shut you down. And you could have approached the story from that regard or to what you were saying before, I could imagine them kind of working within the framework of reality and injecting these other crazy theories and recreating them in flashback or in fantasy sequences. That could be interesting without having to implicate the next door neighbor in a murder. <laughs> you know, like, there are ways you could have split the difference here, I think, that they didn't even bother. <laughs> Listen, my typical experience with Ryan Murphy is that I can hang in there for the first few episodes yes. and then it just yeah. reaches a point where it goes off the rails and in my mind is irredeemable. So I would not be surprised if this follows that same pattern. The real world story has a lot of different facets to it that are very interesting. So it just seems like a shame to not capitalize on that. Another thing I want to call out here, and I want to get your read on this in general, I brought it up with Sarah in my conversation with Sarah that I was afraid of the Dahmer show because I feel, and tell me what you think about this, I feel that Ryan Murphy has a real misogynistic streak to all of his shows and that they're usually redeemed because he gets really great actresses to redeem those characters. So for example, Sarah Paulson in general with almost all of his projects, but I I almost feel like in the wrong hands, those characters could be completely toxic. And I think about this show specifically, you haven't seen all of it. You have Bobby Carnavale, even though he like filed bankruptcy before and he's had his own problems in the past, he is trying to hold it together. He's trying to save his family. And Very his- relatable to me. In the first two episodes, yes. I identified with him more than anyone else. I don't know if it's another White Lotus situation where <laughs> right. I am for some reason siding with the wrong character, but I understand all the decisions he's making and why. Oh, in, in this circumstance, I think that there's an intentionality to it. His daughter lies to him that she is not hooking up with this older guy multiple times. Then Mm -hmm. he finds out that she is, he calls her out on it. She like posts a video online, which destroys his entire life. Meanwhile, his wife is basically going to walk out on the marriage because he's not having sex with her. Literally multiple women in this show call out their husbands for being not sexual enough which leads them to murder literally multiple times over the course of the show. I'm like, wow, like every woman is like a shrill monster who is driving her son, her brother, her spouse to murder 
<laughs> and every guy is just like this stressed out mess. And, yes. <laughs> and because that's they're trying to keep the women happy. Exactly. And that's where I say there's, there's a, like a misogynistic streak to it. You know, I think like you said, I could completely appreciate the fact that, you know, you're part of this rat race, you're buying into this this home, you're tr building, buying into this fantasy of the suburbs, it bites, bites you in the ass, right? And you're trying to hold it together and it doesn't work out for you. Here's something that is made up in the show, but I do want to call it out because it did actually happen in a way. There is a sequence in the show. I don't think you've seen this yet, Sona, in, in your viewing of it, but they have this story that supposedly took place in the exact same house that in Westfield, New Jersey, there was this guy, the immediate previous owner, supposedly, or two owners back that murdered his whole entire family in that house. That is and that's like the Amityville Horror. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, by the way, Amityville Horror is another real estate nightmare. And I think that is actually yes. another template for this show as well. I definitely thought of the Amityville Horror when I was watching this. But there is an actual true life story. It did not take place in the 90s, like they say here. It took place in the 60s. And it did take place in Westfield, New Jersey. There was a guy who bought a house, couldn't really afford it. His mom had moved in, was lying to them saying that he was financially stable enough to support the house and the family. He was actually going under. And he, rather than telling them what was happening, he decided he's going to murder all of them. And that would be a solution to the problem. It's pretty crazy. Killed his mom first. Then he killed his wife. Then he waited for his daughter to come home from school, shot her and killed her, propped them all up in the living room. And then this is the craziest part. He went to his son's soccer practice, hung out at the soccer practice, waited took the kid home, walked him in the door and shot him too and killed him. <laughs> so oh as cold blooded as you can get. That did happen in Westfield, New Jersey, not in this house, not in this house and not five or six years before. It happened decades before. By the way, that is the inspiration for another horror movie called The Stepfather with uh, Terry O'Quinn, by the way, from Lost. Mm. Um, and he then disappeared, left his family propped up in the house, left the lights yeah, on. you're going to have to. <laughs> And over time, people started to wonder what's going on in there. They kicked in the door, found their bodies propped up in the living room. He had disappeared, had changed his name and opened an accounting firm in Virginia. And I think it was in 1989 that he was one of the first people caught by America's Most Wanted. So that's the actual story. It's a very disturbing story and very much a story about the terrible decisions you make because of economic anxiety. <laughs> uh, more interesting than this show, although they do recreate it here in uh, the most uh, ridiculous way as possible. His wife is calling him out for being impotent and not being able to support the family. And she's going to go and find someone who's going to take care of her sexual needs. And that's when he finally kills her. Because, of course, all these women just need their sexual desires. They're putting all this pressure on these men. Don't they understand these men have all these pressures? They can't uh -huh. just, you know, all that personal stress leads to erectile dysfunction. <laughs> oh, my God. All these women, if they weren't so horny all the time, none of these guys would get into trouble. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty weird motif in all of his shows, pretty much. And that's my <sighs> and that's my advertisement for the fact that the latest season of American Horror Story NYC is coming to FX this week. <laughs> I will definitely not be watching that. In the last couple of minutes, though, I do want to mention I watched all of American Horror Story 1. I almost quit it early on, but then by the end of it was pretty satisfied with it. To your point, I feel like I watched probably just the first three or four seasons of that show. I probably did not get further than that. But Same. I feel I felt like season two, I watched half of it and then I quit. Season three, I watched the first like three or four episodes. And I'm like, no, I can't watch this anymore. And I think by the time I got to episode uh, season four or five, it was like I watched the pilot episode and I'm like, nah, 
<laughs> I'm not going to do this again. <laughs> like I could literally plot a trajectory of the number of episodes I watched of each one of those. And they just went down to one and then to zero. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked. I think I've probably sampled season four, maybe season five. I don't remember which one was the circus one. I think I saw one or two yeah. episodes of that. And to, to discover that there's been 11 seasons of this, 11 seasons. Oh my God, 11 seasons, incredible. He's doing something right. It's just not for me, I guess. I mean, his tagline, right? Isn't it something like from the depraved mind of Ryan Murphy or something <laughs> like that? He backs it up. Like if that's what you're looking for, yeah. it's firing on all cylinders. If you're looking for something that is just completely disturbing, depraved, appalling, you wonder how the human mind could even conjure such a thing. He will deliver on that. That is not my particular interest. But I thought he was turning a corner, not only with Dahmer, but you know, I think about the OJ show, which I did watch and I thought was mostly good. Had I agree fiction- the OJ show was good. I fictionalized do. some things, but I thought, you know, overall. And also I did not watch this, but I heard pretty good things about the Lewinsky American uh crime story yeah, series, I which I watch that did either. not watch either. But once again, I assume. You know, there weren't like witches in the White yeah, House. He's uh, eating babies in by the <laughs> by the structure of the actual real life events. A these are real more. life. These are real life events. Too. I know, but <laughs> it, isn't it? Is it based on a true story or inspired on a true story oh, by a true know. story? Like, it, there's know. a lot of room for license in those. I don't know. <laughs> <sighs> All right, probably dedicated way too much time to discussing this pretty lame show. As I mentioned to everybody, I apologize if you watched this because I recommended it to you or (laughs) minimally, (laughs) minimally, I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe you'd like this type of show. I I mean, honestly, I enjoyed the first season of American Horror Story. So there is a place for this. I, I just was very disappointed in maybe my expectations that since this is based loosely on a true story, it would deal with some of the real life anxiety that the article provoked in me. Right. I agree. It's not even like metaphorically, it touches on the same things. It's just like, we're just going to make an American horror story, but then we're not going to go completely off the rails with like the gore and stuff, because we want people to think this actually happened. And and it's still pretty preposterous. They should have gone 100% like a serial killer show or like a stalker type fictionalization with an actual predator that you, you know, see messing with them. Uh, That would be more satisfying than this kind of, this could have almost happened, but we made up all the details. It's just like, it's just bizarre. I agree. So next week we will be discussing the final episode of The Patient. I don't think we have a title on it yet. And also our final thoughts on the entire series and whether it was worth it and whether, you know, some of the qual- <laughs> some of the questions we had about like whether that was the right way to deliver the episodes, et cetera. And we don't know yet until we get that final episode. Do tune in next week and we will have those Final thoughts. All right, Sona, thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.